0: Chapter two of the Clicking of Cuthbert This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Recording by Rosie Chapter two A Woman Is Only A Woman By PG Woodhouse On a fine day in the spring, summer, or early autumn, there are few spots more delightful than the terrace in front of our golf club it is a vantage point peculiarly fitted to the man of philosophic mind for from it may be seen that varied never-ending pageant which men call golf in a number of its aspects to your right on the first tee stand the cheery optimists who are about to make their opening drive happily conscious that even a topped shot will trickle a measurable distance down the steep hill away in the valley directly in front of you is the lake hole where these same optimists will be converted to pessimism by the wet splash of a new ball at your side is the ninth green with its sinuous undulations which have so often wrecked the returning traveller in sight of home and at various points within your line of vision are the third tee the sixth tee and the sinister bunkers about the eighth green none of them lacking in food for the reflective mind it is on this terrace that the oldest member sits watching the younger generation knocking at the divot his gaze wanders from jimmy fothergill's two hundred and twenty yard drive down the hill to the silver drops that flash up in the sun as young freddie woosley's mashie shot drops weakly into the waters of the lake returning it rests upon peter willard large and tall and james todd small and slender as they struggle up the fairway of the ninth love says the oldest member is an emotion which your true golfer should always treat with suspicion do not misunderstand me I am not saying that love is a bad thing, only that it is an unknown quantity. I have known cases where marriage improved a man's game, and other cases where it seemed to put him right off his stroke. There seems to be no fixed rule. But what I do say is that a golfer should be cautious. He should not be led away by the first pretty face. I will tell you a story that illustrates the point. It is the story of those two men who have just got on to the ninth green, Peter Willard and James Todd there is about great friendships between man and man said the oldest member a certain inevitability that can only be compared with the age-old association of ham and eggs no one can say when it was that these two wholesome and palatable foodstuffs first came together nor what was a mutual magnetism that brought their deathless partnership about one simply feels that it is one of the things that must be so similarly with men who can trace to its first beginnings the love of damon for pythias of david for jonathan of swan for edgar who can explain what it was about cross that first attracted blackwell we simply say these men are friends and leave it at that in the case of peter willard and james todd one may hazard the guess that the first link in the chain that bound them together was the fact that they took up golf within a few days of each other and contrived as time went on to develop such equal form at the game that the most expert critics are still baffled in their efforts to decide which is the worst player i have heard the point argued a hundred times without any conclusion being reached supporters of peter claim that his driving off the tee entitles him to an unchallenged preeminence among the world's most hopeless foolslers only to be discomfited later when the advocates of james show by means of diagrams that no one has ever surpassed their man in absolute incompetence with the spoon it is one of those problems where debate is futile few things draw two men together more surely than a mutual inability to master golf coupled with an intense and ever-increasing love for the game at the end of the first few months when a series of costly experiments had convinced both peter and james that there was not a tottering greybeard nor a toddling infant in the neighborhood whose downfall they could encompass the two became inseparable it was pleasanter they found to play together and go neck and neck round the eighteen holes than to take on some lissom youngster who could splatter them all over the course with one old ball and a cut-down cleek stolen from his father or some spavined elder who not only rubbed it into them but was apt between strokes to bore them with personal reminiscences of the crimean war so they began to play together early and late in the small hours before breakfast, long ere the first faint piping of the waking caddy made itself heard from the caddy shed, they were halfway through their opening round. And at close of day, when bats wheeled against the steely sky and the pros had stolen home to rest, you might see them in the deepening dusk going through the concluding exercises of their final spasm. After dark, they visited each other's houses and read golf books if you have gathered from what i have said that peter willard and james todd were fond of golf i am satisfied that is the impression i intended to convey they were real golfers for real golf is a thing of the spirit not of mere mechanical excellence of stroke it must not be thought however that they devoted too much of their time and their thoughts to golf assuming indeed that such a thing is possible each was connected with a business in the metropolis and often before he left for the links peter would go to the trouble and expense of ringing up the office to say he would not be coming in that day while well, i myself have heard james and this not once but frequently say while lunching in the clubhouse, that he had half a mind to get gracechurch street on the phone and ask how things were going they were in fact the type of men of whom england is proudest the backbone of a great country toilers in the mart untired business men keen red-blooded men of affairs if they played a little golf besides who shall blame them so they went on day by day happy and contented and then the woman came into their lives like the serpent in the links of eden and perhaps for the first time they realized that they were not one entity not one single indivisible something that made for top drives and short putts but two individuals in whose breasts nature had implanted other desires than the simple ambition some day to do the dogleg hole on the second nine in under double figures my friends tell me that when i am relating a story my language is inclined at times a little to obscure my meaning but if you understand from what i have been saying that james todd and peter willard both fell in love with the same woman all right let us carry on That is precisely what I was driving at. I have not the pleasure of an intimate acquaintance with Grace Forrester. I have seen her in the distance watering the flowers in her garden, and on these occasions her stance struck me as graceful, and once, at a picnic, I observed her killing wasps with a teaspoon, and was impressed by the freedom of the wrist-action of her backswing. Beyond this I can say little, but she must have been attractive, for there can be no doubt of the earnestness with which both Peter and James fell in love with her. I doubt if either slept a wink the night of the dance, at which it was their privilege first to meet her. The next afternoon, happening to encounter Peter in the bunker near the 11th green, James said, "'That was a nice girl, that Miss—what's-her-name,' and Peter, pausing for a moment from his trench-digging, replied, "'Yes,' and then James, with a pang, knew that he had a rival, for he had not mentioned Miss Forrester's name, and yet Peter had divined that it was to her that he had referred.' love is a fever which so to speak drives off without wasting time on the address on the very next morning after the conversation which i have related james todd rang peter willard up on the phone and cancelled their golf engagements for the day on the plea of a sprained wrist peter acknowledging the cancellation stated that he himself had been on the point of ringing james up to say that he would be unable to play owing to a slight headache they met at tea-time at miss forrester's house james asked how peter's headache was and peter said it was a little better peter inquired after james sprained wrist and was told it seemed on the mend miss forrester dispensed tea and conversation to both impartially they walked home together after an awkward silence of twenty minutes james said there is something about the atmosphere the aura shall i say that emanates from a good woman that makes a man feel that life has a new a different meaning peter replied yes when they reached james door james said i won't ask you in tonight, old man you want to go home and rest and cure that headache yes said peter there was another silence peter was thinking that only a couple of days before james had told him that he had a copy of sandy mcbean's how to become a scratchman your first season by studying photographs coming by parcel post from town and they had arranged to read it aloud together by now thought peter it must be lying on his friend's table The thought saddened him. And James, guessing what was in Peter's mind, was saddened too. But he did not waver. He was in no mood to read McBean's masterpiece that night. In the twenty minutes of silence after leaving Miss Forrester, he had realized that grace rhymes with face, and he wanted to sit alone in his study and write poetry. The two men parted with a distant nod. I beg your pardon? Yes, you're right. Two distant nods. It was always a failing of mine to count the score erroneously it is not my purpose to weary you by a minute recital of the happenings of each day that went by on the surface the lives of these two men seemed unchanged they still played golf together and during the round achieved towards each other a manner that superficially retained all its ancient cheeriness and affection if i should say when james topped his drive peter never failed to say hard luck and when or rather if peter managed not to top his james invariably said great but things were not the same and they knew it it so happened as it sometimes will on these occasions for fate is a dramatist who gets his best effects with a small cast were the only visible aspirants for the hand of miss forrester right at the beginning young freddie woosley had seemed attracted by the girl and had called once or twice with flowers and chocolates but freddie's affections never centered themselves on one object for more than a few days and he had dropped out after the first week from that time on it became clear to all of us that if grace forrester intended to marry any one in the world it would be either james or peter and a good deal of interest was taken in the matter by the local sportsmen. so little was known of the form of the two men neither having figured as principal in a love affair before that even money was the best you could get and the market was sluggish i think my own flutter of twelve golf balls taken up by percival brown was the most substantial of any of the wagers i selected james as the winner why i can hardly say unless that he had an aunt who contributed occasional stories to the woman's sphere these things sometimes weigh with a girl on the other hand george lucas who had half a dozen of ginger ale on peter based his calculations on the fact that james wore knickerbockers on the links and that no girl could possibly love a man with calves like that in short you see we really had nothing to go on nor had james and peter the girls seemed to like them both equally They never saw her except in each other's company and it was not until one day when Grace Forrester was knitting a sweater that there seemed a chance of getting a clue to her hidden feelings. When the news began to spread through the place that Grace was knitting this sweater, there was a big sensation. The thing seemed to us practically to amount to a declaration. That was the view that James Todd and Peter Willard took of it and they used to call on Grace, watch her knitting, and come away with their heads full of complicated calculations. The whole thing hung on one point to wit what size the sweater was going to be if it was large then it must be for peter if small then james was the lucky man neither dared to make open inquiries but it began to seem almost impossible to find out the truth without them no masculine eye can reckon up pearls and planes and estimate the size of chest which the garment is designed to cover moreover with amateur knitters there must always be allowed a margin for involuntary error there were many cases during the war where our girls sent sweaters to their sweethearts which would have induced strangulation in their young brothers the amateur sweater of those days was in fact practically tantamount to german propaganda peter and james were accordingly baffled one evening the sweater would look small and james would come away jubilant the next it would have swollen over a vast area and peter would walk home singing the suspense of the two men can readily be imagined on the one hand they wanted to know their fate on the other they fully realized that whoever the sweater was for would have to wear it and as it was a vivid pink and would probably not fit by a mile their hearts quailed at the prospect in all affairs of human tension there must come a breaking point it came one night as the two men were walking home peter said james stopping in mid-stride he mopped his forehead his manner had been feverish all the evening yes said peter i can't stand this any longer i haven't had a good night's rest for weeks we must find out definitely which of us is to have that sweater let's go back and ask her said peter so they turned back and rang the bell and went into the house and presented themselves before miss forrester lovely evening said james to break the ice superb said peter delightful said miss forrester looking a little surprised at finding the troupe playing a return date without having booked it in advance to settle a bet said james will you please tell us who i should say whom you are knitting that sweater for it is not a sweater replied miss forrester with a womanly candour that well became her it is a sock and it is for my cousin juliet's youngest son willie good-night said james good-night said peter good-night said grace forrester it was during the long hours of the night when ideas so often come to wakeful men that James was struck by an admirable solution of his and Peter's difficulty. It seemed to him that, were one or the other to leave Woodhaven, the survivor would find himself in a position to conduct his wooing as wooing should be conducted. Hitherto, as I have indicated, neither had allowed the other to be more than a few minutes alone with the girl. They watched each other like hawks. When James called, Peter called. When Peter dropped in, James invariably popped round. The thing had resolved itself into a stalemate the idea which now came to james was that he and peter should settle their rivalry by an eighteen-hole match on the links he thought very highly of the idea before he finally went to sleep and in the morning the scheme looked just as good to him as it had done overnight. james was breakfasting next morning preparatory to going round to disclose his plan to peter when peter walked in looking happier than he had done for days morning said james morning said peter Peter sat down and toyed absently with a slice of bacon. "'I've got an idea,' he said. "'One isn't many,' said James, bringing his knife down with a jerk-shot on a fried egg. "'What is your idea?' "'Got it last night as I was lying awake. "'It struck me that, if either of us was to clear out of this place, "'the other would have a fair chance—you know what I mean—with her. "'At present we've got each other stymied.' "'Now how would it be,' said Peter, abstractedly spreading marmalade on his bacon, "'if we were to play an eighteen-hole match, the loser to leg out of the neighbourhood "'and stay away long enough to give the winner the chance to find out exactly how things stood?' "'James started so violently that he struck himself in the left eye with his fork. "'That's exactly the idea I got last night, too.' "'Then it's a go?' "'It's the only thing to do.' "'There was silence for a moment. Both men were thinking.' Remember, they were friends. For years they had shared each other's sorrows, joys, and golf balls, and sliced into the same bunkers. Presently, Peter said, "'I shall miss you.' "'What do you mean, miss me?' "'When you're gone. Woodhaven won't seem the same place, but of course you'll soon be able to come back. I shan't waste any time proposing.' "'Leave me your address,' said James, "'and I'll send you a wire when you can return. You won't be offended if I don't ask you to be best man at the wedding.' in the circumstances it might be painful to you peter sighed dreamily we'll have the sitting-room done in blue her eyes are blue remember said james there will always be a knife and fork for you at our little nest grace is not the woman to want me to drop my bachelor friends touching this match said peter strict royal and ancient rules of course certainly i mean to say no offence old man but no grounding niblicks in bunkers Precisely. And without hinting at anything personal, the ball shall be considered hold out only when it is in the hole, not when it stops on the edge. Undoubtedly. And, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Missing the ball counts as a stroke, not as a practice swing. Exactly. And you'll forgive me if I mention it, a player whose ball has fallen in the rough may not pull up all the bushes within a radius of three feet. In fact, strict rules strict rules they shook hands without more words and presently peter walked out and james with a guilty look over his shoulder took down sandy mcbean's great work from the bookshelf and began to study the photograph of the short approach shot showing mr mcbean swinging from point a through dotted line b c to point d his head the while remaining rigid at the spot marked with a cross He felt a little guiltily that he had stolen a march on his friend, and that the contest was as good as over. I cannot recall a lovelier summer day than that on which the great Todd Willard eighteen-hole match took place. It had rained during the night, and now the sun shone down from a clear blue sky onto turf that glistened more greenly than the young grass of early spring. Butterflies flitted to and fro, birds sang merrily, in short all nature smiled and it is to be doubted if nature ever had a better excuse for smiling or even laughing outright for matches like that between james todd and peter willard do not occur every day whether it was that love had keyed them up or whether hours of study of braid's advanced golf and the badminton book had produced a belated effect i cannot say but both started off quite reasonably well our first hole as you can see is a bogey four and James was dead on with the pin in seven, leaving Peter, who had twice hit the United Kingdom with his mashie in mistake for the ball, a difficult putt for the half. Only one thing could happen when you left Peter a difficult putt, and James advanced to the lake hole one up, Peter, as he followed, trying to console himself with the thought that many of the best golfers prefer to lose the first hole and save themselves for a strong finish peter and james had played over the lake hole so often that they had become accustomed to it and had grown into the habit of sinking a ball or two as a preliminary formality with much the same stoicism displayed by those kings in ancient and superstitious times who used to fling jewelry into the sea to propitiate it before they took a voyage but to-day by one of those miracles without which golf would not be golf each of them got over with his first shot and not only over but dead on the pin our pro himself could not have done better i think it was at this point that the two men began to go to pieces they were in an excited frame of mind and this thing unmanned them you will no doubt recall keats's poem about stout cortez staring with eagle eyes at the pacific while all his men gazed at each other with a wild surmise silent upon a peak in darien precisely so did peter willard and james todd stare with eagle eyes at the second lake hole and gaze at each other with a wild surmise silent upon a tea in woodhaven they had dreamed of such a happening so often and woke to find the vision false that at first they could not believe that the thing had actually occurred i got it over whispered james in an awed voice so did i muttered peter in one with my very first They walked in silence around the edge of the lake and holed out. One putt was enough for each, and they halved the hole with a two. Peter's previous record was eight, and James had once done a seven. There are times when strong men lose their self-control, and this was one of them. They reached the third tee in a daze, and it was here that mortification began to set in. The third hole is another bogey four, up the hill and past the tree that serves as a direction-post, the hole itself being out of sight on his day james had often done it in ten and peter in nine but now they were unnerved james who had the honour shook visibly as he addressed his ball three times he swung and only connected with the ozone the fourth time he topped badly the discs had been set back a little way and james had the mournful distinction of breaking a record for the course by playing his fifth shot from the tee it was a low raking brassy shot which carried a heap of stones twenty feet to the right and finished in a furrow peter meanwhile had pupped up a lofty ball which came to rest behind a stone it was now that the rigid rules governing this contest began to take their toll had they been playing an ordinary friendly round each would have teed up on some convenient hillock and probably been past the tree with their second for james would in ordinary circumstances have taken his drive back, and regarded the strokes he had made as a little preliminary practice to get him into mid-season form. But today it was war to the Niblick, and neither man asked nor expected quarter. Peter's seventh shot dislodged the stone, leaving him a clear field, and James, with his eleventh, extricated himself from the furrow. Fifty feet from the tree, James was eighteen, Peter twelve but then the latter, as every golfer does at times, suddenly went right off his game. He hit the tree four times, then hooked into the sand bunkers to the left of the hole. James, who had been playing a game that was steady without being brilliant, was on the green in twenty-six, Peter taking twenty-seven. Poor putting lost James the hole. Peter was down in thirty-three, but the pace was too hot for James. He missed a two-foot putt for the half, and they went to the fourth tee all square the fourth hole follows the curve of the road on the other side of which are picturesque woods it presents no difficulties to the expert but it has pitfalls for the novice the dashing player stands for a slice while the more cautious are satisfied if they can clear the bunker that spans the fairway and lay their ball well out to the left whence an iron shot will take them to the green peter and james combine the two policies peter aimed to the left and got a slice and james also aiming to the left topped into the bunker peter realizing from experience the futility of searching for his ball in the woods drove a second which also disappeared into the jungle as did his third by the time he had joined james in the bunker he had played his sixth it is the glorious uncertainty of golf that makes it the game it is the fact that james and peter lying side by side in the same bunker had played respectively one and six shots might have induced an unthinking observer to fancy the chances of the former and no doubt had he not taken seven strokes to extricate himself from the pit while his opponent by some act of god contrived to get out in two james's chances might have been extremely rosy as it was the two men staggered out on to the fairway again with a score of eight apiece once past the bunker and round the bend of the road the whole becomes simple a judicious use of the cleek put peter on the green in fourteen while james with a braid-iron reached it in twelve Peter was down in seventeen, and James contrived to have. It was only as he was leaving the hole that the latter discovered that he had been putting with his niblick, which could not have failed to exercise a prejudicial effect on his game. These little incidents are bound to happen when one is in a nervous and highly strung condition. The fifth and sixth holes produced no unusual features. Peter won the fifth in eleven, and James the sixth in ten. The short seventh they halved in nine the eighth always a tricky hole they took no liberties with james sinking a long putt with his twenty-third just managing to have a ding-dong race up the hill for the ninth found james first at the pin and they finished the first nine with james one up as they left the green james looked a little furtively at his companion you might be strolling on to the tenth he said i want to get a few balls at the shop and my mashie wants fixing up i shan't be long i'll come with you said peter don't bother said james you go on and hold our place at the tea i regret to say that james was lying his mashie was in excellent repair and he still had a dozen balls in his bag it being his prudent practice always to start out with eighteen no what he had said was mere subterfuge he wanted to go to his locker and snatch a few minutes with sandy mcbean's how to become a scratch man He felt sure that one more glance at the photograph of Mr. McBean driving would give him the mastery of the stroke and so enable him to win the match. In this, I think, he was a little sanguine. The difficulty about Sandy McBean's method of tuition was that he laid great stress on the fact that the ball should be directly in a line with a point exactly in the center of the back of the player's neck and so far James's efforts to keep his eye on the ball and on the back of his neck simultaneously had produced no satisfactory results. It seemed to James, when he joined Peter on the tenth tee, that the latter's manner was strange. He was pale. There was a curious look in his eye. "'James, old man,' he said. "'Yes,' said James. "'While you were away, I have been thinking. James, old man, do you really love this girl?' James started. A spasm of pain twisted Peter's face. "'Suppose,' he said in a low voice, "'she were not all you—we think she is.' "'What do you mean?' "'Nothing, nothing. Miss Forrester is an angel.' "'Yes, yes, quite so.' "'I know what it is,' said James passionately. "'You're trying to put me off my stroke. You know that the least thing makes me lose my form.' "'No, no!' you hope that you can take my mind off the game and make me go to pieces and then you'll win the match on the contrary said peter i intend to forfeit the match james reeled what i give up but but james shook with emotion his voice quavered ah he cried i see now i understand you are doing this for me because i am your pal peter this is noble this is the sort of thing you read about in books i've seen it in the movies but i can't accept the sacrifice you must no no i insist do you mean this i give her up james old man i i hope you will be happy but i don't know what to say how can i thank you don't thank me but peter do you fully realize what you are doing true i am one up but there are nine holes to go and i am not right on my game today you might easily beat me "'Have you forgotten that I once took forty-seven at the dog-leg hole? "'This may be one of my bad days. "'Do you understand that if you insist on giving up "'I shall go to Miss Forrester tonight and propose to her?' "'I understand. "'And yet you stick to it that you are through?' "'I do. "'And—but the way— "'There's no need for you to wait till tonight. "'I saw Miss Forrester just now outside the tennis-court. "'She's alone.' "'James turned crimson. "'Then I think perhaps—' "'You'd better go to her at once.' "'I will,' James extended his hand. "'Peter, old man, I shall never forget this.' "'That's all right.' "'What are you going to do?' "'Now, do you mean? "'Oh, I shall potter round the second nine. "'If you want me, you'll find me somewhere about.' "'You'll come to the wedding, Peter,' said James, wistfully. "'Of course,' said Peter. "'Good luck.' He spoke cheerily, but when the other had turned to go, he stood looking after him thoughtfully. Then he sighed a heavy sigh james approached miss forrester with a beating heart she made a charming picture as she stood there in the sunlight one hand on her hip the other swaying a tennis racket how do you do said james how are you mr todd have you been playing golf yes with mr willard yes we were having a match golf said grace forrester seems to make men very rude mr willard left me without a word in the middle of our conversation james was astonished "'Were you talking to Peter?' "'Yes, just now. I can't understand what was the matter with him. He just turned on his heel and swung off.' "'You oughtn't to turn on your heel when you swing,' said James. "'Only on the ball of your foot.' "'I beg your pardon?' "'Nothing, nothing. I wasn't thinking. The fact is, I've something on my mind. So has Peter. You mustn't think too hardly of him. We have been playing an important match, and it must have got on his nerves. You didn't happen by any chance to be watching us.' no ah i wish you had seen me at the lake hole i did it one under par was your father playing you don't understand i mean i did it in one better than even the finest player is supposed to do it it's a mashy shot you know you mustn't play too light or you fall in the lake and you mustn't play it too hard or you go past the hole into the woods it requires the nicest delicacy and judgment such as i gave it you might have to wait a year before seeing any one do it in two again i doubt if the pro often does it in two now directly we came to this hole today, i made up my mind that there was going to be no mistake the great secret of any shot at golf is ease elegance and the ability to relax the majority of men you will find think it important that their address should be good how snobbish what does it matter where a man lives you don't absolutely follow me i refer to the waggle and the stance before you make the stroke most players seem to fix in their minds the appearance of the angles which are presented by the position of the arms legs and club-shaft and it is largely the desire to retain these angles which results in their moving their heads and stiffening their muscles so that there is no freedom in the swing there is only one point which vitally affects the stroke and the only reason why that should be kept constant is that you are enabled to see your ball clearly that is the pivotal point marked at the base of the neck and a line drawn from this point to the ball should be at right angles to the line of flight James paused for a moment for air, and as he paused, Miss Forrester spoke. "'This is all gibberish to me,' she said. "'Gibberish!' gasped James. "'I am quoting verbatim from one of the best authorities on golf.' Miss Forrester swung her tennis-racket irritably. "'Golf,' she said, "'bores me pallid. I think it is the silliest game ever invented.' The trouble about telling a story is that words are so feeble a means of depicting the supreme moments of life that is where the artist has the advantage over the historian were i an artist i should show james at this point falling backwards with his feet together and his eyes shut with a semicircular dotted line marking the progress of his flight and a few stars above his head to indicate moral collapse there are no words that can adequately describe the sheer black horror that froze the blood in his veins as this frightful speech smote his ears he had never inquired into miss forrester's religious views before but he had always assumed that they were sound. And now here she was polluting the golden summer air with the most hideous blasphemy. It would be incorrect to say that James's love was turned to hate. He did not hate Grace. The repulsion he felt was deeper than mere hate. What he felt was not altogether loathing and not wholly pity. It was a blend of the two. There was a tense silence. The listening world stood still. Then, without a word, James Todd turned and tottered away peter was working moodily in the twelfth bunker when his friend arrived he looked up with a start then seeing that the other was alone he came forward hesitatingly am i to congratulate you james breathed a deep breath you are he said on an escape she refused you she didn't get the chance old man have you ever sent one right up the edge of that bunker in front of the seventh and just not gone in very rarely i did once it was my second shot from a good lie with the light-iron and i followed well through and thought i had gone just too far and when i walked up there was my ball on the edge of the bunker nicely teed up on a chunk of grass so that i was able to lay it dead with my mashie niblick holding out in six well what i mean to say is i feel now as i felt then as if some unseen power had withheld me in time from some frightful disaster i know just how you feel said peter gravely peter old man that girl said golf bored her pallid she said she thought it was the silliest game ever invented he paused to mark the effect of his words peter merely smiled a faint wan smile you don't seem revolted said james i am revolted but not surprised you see she said the same thing to me only a few minutes before she did It amounted to the same thing. I had just been telling her how I did the lake hole today in two, and she said that in her opinion golf was a game for children with water on the brain who weren't athletic enough to play animal grab. The two men shivered in sympathy. There must be insanity in the family, said James at last. That, said Peter, is the charitable explanation. We were fortunate to find it out in time. We were. We mustn't run a risk like that again. Never again. I think we had better take up golf really seriously. It will keep us out of mischief. You're quite right. We ought to do our four rounds a day regularly. In spring, summer, and autumn. And in winter it would be rash not to practice most of the day at one of those indoor schools. We ought to be safe that way. Peter, old man, said James, I've been meaning to speak to you about it for some time. I've got Sandy McMeaden's new book, and I think you ought to read it. It is full of helpful hints. James! Peter! Silently the two men clasped hands. James Todd and Peter Willard were themselves again. And so, said the oldest member, we come back to our original starting point. To wit, that while there is nothing to be said definitely against love, your golfer should be extremely careful how he indulges in it. It may improve his game, or it may not. But if he finds that there is any danger that it may not— If the object of his affections is not the kind of girl who will listen to him with cheerful sympathy through the long evenings, while he tells her, illustrating stance and grip and swing with the kitchen poker, each detail of the day's round, then, I say unhesitatingly, he had better leave it alone. Love has had a lot of press-agenting from the oldest times, but there are higher, nobler things than love. A woman is only a woman, but a hefty drive is a slosh. End of chapter 2 Recording by Rosie